John did work under me, and I can't think of a better example than of the student rising higher than his teacher. Uh, he's, he's better read than I am, he's smarter than I am, and he's more gracious than I am because he, he says that he learned something from me when he was with us, so that's nice. Um, I've been coming to you for a long time. I think the first time I ever preached here was when John and I were going to be heading out to um, a Civil War site. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. Uh, Gettysburg. We were going to Gettysburg. And I preached that morning and then we took off for Gettysburg at the, from the school you were meeting in there. Um, and I, the, one of the first things I noticed this morning is when, when we met at the, when you were meeting at the school, any time I was ever there, it was a very quiet place because there were no children. And now you got them flying all over the place. That's very encouraging. That's a good sign. I think the best noise in a church other than real worship is screaming kids. And uh, glad to hear it. Um, thanks for... I know you didn't vote on this, but thanks for letting me preach here this morning. Um, uh, it's a privilege to open this book. Um, let's pray as we begin. Father, hear, uh, hear our prayer. We ask that um, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our King and our Redeemer. Feed us with the living word. Use the preaching of the word, Lord, to Correct us, instruct us in righteousness, exhort us so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have for us to do. Feed us now. Help this preacher to say nothing that should not be said, to leave nothing out that should be said, that you would be praised and we would be more faithful servants. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. I don't know what you know, so I'll say things that maybe you know, but just in case you don't. The kingdom, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was divided between Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Judah was basically the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Israel was the rest. Um, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom fell away from God. So did Judah eventually. The northern kingdom of Israel fell away first. And they fell captive first to Assyria as a punishment from God for their sins. But Judah eventually would fall as well. They remained faithful to God longer than Israel did. And in chapter 11, verse 12 of Hosea, Hosea writes, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So they remained faithful a little longer. About 130 years before 
the city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom was laid siege to by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Um, several years before that, he had taken a lot of people captive and carted them back to uh, Babylon. That would be uh, Daniel and his three friends among them. Ezekiel wrote his whole prophecy from Babylon. Judah fell hard uh, eventually, but when Hosea is writing, haven't fallen hard yet. I would encourage you, you want to, I preached yesterday at a, at a retreat um, from Ezekiel 22, where Ezekiel lists the sins that the southern kingdom of Israel, or of the southern kingdom of Judah, was committing and therefore uh, causing God to come upon them with the judgment that he said he would. And you read Ezekiel 22, verses 6 to 16, and it's frightening. And if you think it's worse now than it has ever been, then you need to read Ezekiel 22. Uh, human, the human condition is sinful. It has always been so since the fall. And I think... We're not, we're not greater sinners or less sinners than they were in Ezekiel's day. But we can sin more technologically than they could. But we are not better people. And, and it is not, we are not worse people. We're not worse now. And uh, they fell eventually very hard. But when Hosea is writing this, they have not yet fallen hard. But they are not sinless. And in Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 to 6, we find the only words in the whole prophecy of Hosea that is addressed directly to the southern kingdom of Judah. Hosea is a prophet to the north. And yet God gives him some words to say to the southern kingdom of Judah. And while Judah has remained faithful, so the first thing, I see you got the outline in the bulletin. I do these outlines and I just race through them and they're not written down for anybody to see and nobody knows how I do not abide by them. But now it's in your bulletin so I got to try to pay attention to my own outline. So the first thing here is that God calls Judah to repent. Um, they have generally remained faithful to the covenant with God longer than Israel has. But they are not sinless, and God has issues with them. And so he starts in verse 2. The Lord has an indictment, I'm using the ESV, an indictment against Judah. Now Judah did not think that they had anything that God should be that concerned about. Because when, you compare your, when they compared themselves with Israel, they look pretty good. Question for you. How would you define a big sin? What is your definition of a big sin? I'm not asking you to shout it out, think it out. What's a big sin to you? My definition of a big sin is this. Big sins are the ones I don't commit. I have a scale of sins. And the big ones are way up here. The small ones are down here on the scale. And miraculously, all mine are way down here. And all the big ones that you commit... They're way up here. Big sins are sins that I don't commit. We do this well. We compare ourselves with others. And it's fun to compare ourselves with more wicked, more vile, more godless people than we are. 
somebody points out to you that you have said something, done something wrong, and we will say, yeah, but I'm not this, right? I didn't, look what, look what he did. Look what they are doing. Look what I was saved from. And we compare ourselves to others who are worse than us just to make it look like, yeah, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a big sinner. I think this is, you know, we call ourselves evangelicals. Maybe you don't, but generally speaking, we are evangelicals, whether you use the title or not. We don't do what the culture's doing. We don't believe what the culture believes. We don't run away from God like the culture does. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe this book is true. And we're not, and say, hiss the word through your teeth. We're not liberal in our theology. But the question for us, like the question to Judah. See, I imagine myself being a resident of Judah. Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And I don't know if the people of Judah had heard Hosea's message, but they're getting this message. God tells Hosea, write this down, get this message to Judah. So they get the whole prophecy? I think so. And you read, they read the first 11 chapters of Hosea. They said, go God. And then one little section. I have an indictment against Judah. And the, and the ears perk up. How could God have any thing against us. Hosea has been preaching some fairly severe things and his life was a living demonstration of the severity of God's word to the kingdom of Israel. Go marry a prostitute to, to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of Israel to me. That's how Hosea begins. And they read this and yeah, Wicked Israel. If we want to be what God wants us to be, though, we cannot look around and see how bad the sins of others are. This was Isaiah's problem. I believe this was the prophet Isaiah's problem. If you read Isaiah 5, and I, I don't know how many times he says, I, I've probably circled it and, and counted it. Um, yes, in, in, in Isaiah 5, verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house. Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six times. He says, and it's a true message. The message he's giving is true. It's the right message. It's a message God has given Isaiah to give to the people of Israel. But something is happening in Isaiah's head. Woe to you who do these things. Nasty, nasty you. And God comes to Isaiah in chapter 6, says, Isaiah, come up here a minute. And in the year that King Uzziah died, chapter 6 tells us, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Carson says, 
He didn't see God. He saw the back parts of the, of the train of God's temple, of God's robe. And God is on the throne. He's surrounded by these seraphim, these angelic creatures, who with these six wings, two covering their faces because they constantly are in the presence of God. With two, they cover their feet because you can't stand before a holy God. And with two, they fly ready to serve at a moment's notice. And their occupation while they're there is to constantly back and forth across the front and the back of this throne is call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And I said... Isaiah says, Woe is me. Woe is me. Ah, it's fun being a preacher. I can say, Woe to you. Woe, woe, woe. And Isaiah hears the message from God. Come up here and sit in front of me for a minute. And he has his audience with God. And it's no longer, look how bad they are. Now the message is, Whoa. I, woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I'm falling to pieces. I'm disintegrating. If I don't get out of here, I'm going to fall apart. For I am in the presence of God. And I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Or in other words, my sin is just as bad as theirs. I'm no better than they are. And now he's afraid he's going to die. And one of the seraphim comes, cleanse, touches his lips with a coal from the altar. And he is cleansed. But this was, I think, this, I think that's what chapter 6 is about. It's easy to compare ourselves to others and look good. Woe to them. But then Isaiah, in the presence of God, them is gone. There's only me in front of God. Woe is me. And the mercy of God is, I will purge you. And there is no command. There, this is a side point. It has nothing to do with message. No command to Isaiah to go. God says, simply says, after Isaiah is forgiven, who will go? There's no call for anybody to go. God just wants to know who will. God knows what he's up to. And here's Isaiah, who has seen himself compared to God who realizes he's a sinner and has now been forgiven and made whole and cleansed. And he says, I'll go. That's what grace does to us. I'm not looking at your sins anymore. I'm just glad I get to serve such a God. This is, I believe, might be the problem in the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, to the, to the Ephesian church. I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now just imagine, you're a member of the Ephesian church, and you go to church one morning, and the elder of the day gets up and says, we got a letter from the apostle John. He used to pastor here. And it's the very words, it's 
this part of the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, is dictated. This is what Jesus says to these churches. Dictate. Write this down, John. Here's what I want you to say to the Ephesian church. You're working hard. You're persevering. You haven't given up. This is pretty good stuff. And you're sitting in the back row and say, Whoa! What a church we're in. And then he says, But, uh, there's always a but, I have one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love, and despite all the other bad things that you were, all the other good things that you were doing, you are doing it without a love for God or neighbor. Therefore, he tells them, I'm shutting you. I'm going to shut you down if you don't get your act together. And the Ephesian church had this right. They are great sinners. That's, he says he's an apostle. Uh-uh. You can't come in here. We are working hard. But they don't love God like they should. They don't love their neighbor like they should. They love their adherence to the truth. Look at us. We adhere to the truth. That's us. That's evangelicals. That's how we live. We're not like them out there. This is what's happening to Judah. I have an indictment against Judah. How can anybody have an indictment against us? Look at what Israel is doing. And the Lord begins to tell Judah that they need to get their act together. I have something against you. And I will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will, God will repay him according to to his deeds. And the way God is going to get them to repent is to start rehearsing some of their history to them very briefly, but very dramatically. In verse 3, God starts telling Judah about Jacob. Jacob is Israel. He is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. The three great patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the father of their nation. And they begins Three things he tells them about their father, Jacob. One, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. This is not just a historical fact, although it was. Jacob is a twin. Esau is born first. And Jacob, in the womb, had grabbed Esau by the heel. And Esau is born first. And as his feet clear the birth canal, they see a fist around Esau's ankle. And this is son number two. And so they name him Jacob. One who grabs you by the heel, sneaks up behind you, and hits you when you're not looking. Because... and. The way Jacob was born is an indication of just how he lived his life. This is Jacob. Jacob is the father of Israel. What God can do with this kind of people is stunningly amazing. Jacob is the one who grabs you by the heel. If I, if I had known Esau and Jacob, I think I would have rather have hung around with Esau, at least in the early parts. So we see them being born, and then the next thing we see of Jacob, 40 years later, is Esau coming back from hunting, and he's hungry, and Jacob has made a stew, 
and he says to his twin brother, I'm hungry. Can you give me something to eat? And Jacob, the twin brother, it just, it is stunning, says, Some of your birthright, and I'll give you something to eat. Holy schmoke. Any twins here? I mean, you know, any, any siblings here? <laughs> my, my brother comes to my house and says, you know, it's supper time. He says, I haven't eaten all day. I think I'm going to feed him without demanding some payment. This is Jacob. The next thing we see is he's making himself look like, look like Esau for his blind father so his father can feel his arms and think that he's Esau so he can get the blessing. So he steals his birthright. He steals the blessing. This is a nasty guy. And he is what his name says. I am he is Jacob. His father asks him, your voice sounds like Jacob. What is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Esau. You're firstborn. It's the first thing God tells them about their patriarch. The second thing he tells them is in his manhood, he strove with God. This is from Genesis chapter 32, where uh, Jacob has heard that Esau is coming to meet him, and he thinks Esau is coming to kill him, so he steals away by himself. And, and, and the angel of the Lord comes, and they wrestle all night. Genesis chapter 32. And they're wrestling. I teach a bunch of uh, teenagers. They come over from Germany in their gap year, and they work here for a year, and they all have questions, and they practically ask the same questions every year, every one of them. Um, and one that sometimes come up is this one, you know. How come God couldn't beat Jacob up? Right? Well, he could have. He lets him wrestle all night. But then, when he's getting tired of this, he just touches him in the hip. He touches him in the hip, and Jacob goes down. This is when Jacob starts to change. Jacob is a... Con a conniver and a deceiver. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father. He deceived his father-in-law. And, and now he's at the end of his rope. Esau's coming to get him. He doesn't know what to do. God finds him, starts wrestling with him. And God touches him in the hip. He dislocates his hip. You read the text. That's what it sounds like, the dislocation. And he goes down. And the only reason he doesn't fall down is because there's an angel there who he's wrestling with. And so before he falls down, he grabs hold. And the angel says to him, let go. Jacob says, I won't let go unless you bless me. But why won't Jacob let go? Because Jacob knows when you let go and you can't walk, you're going to fall. It's a lesson that Jacob needed to learn all his life. All his life, he's had a plan to sneak up from behind and get you. Birthright. Blessing, father-in-law's sheep, whatever it is, I can get it. I can scheme my way and get what I want. And now he's holding on to God. And God says, ah, you think you're something, don't you? Let go. See what happens to you. And Jacob says, no, no, I'm not letting go. We like to talk about the day we're saved. This, this just might have been. Jacob's salvation 
moment. And now he's done with himself and he hangs on. And the angel of the Lord, who I believe is Christ wrestling with Jacob, says to him, what's your name? Well, many years ago, somebody asked him what his name was. And he said, I'm Esau. And God asks him now, what's your name? And he says, I am the one who sneaks up from behind people and gets what he wants. My name is Jacob. And that's what we need to have happen to us. We need to admit who we are. Have you admitted to God who you are? This is, what's, this is what Jacob's going to do. This is, this is what God is reminding the people of here. He wrestled with God. Do you remember what happened? He lied about his name all his life. And now God's got him. What's your name? My name is Jacob. I'm a liar and a schemer and a thief. And God says, you will no longer be called Jacob. You will be called Israel, one who strives with God. And the third thing that he says about Jacob here is, he met with God at Bethel. God, uh, Jacob met with God at Bethel twice. The first time God comes to him, Jacob says, well, if you will be good to me, if you will give me this, I'll serve you. Oh, God is so lucky to have Jacob around. You know, Wow, I give you this and you'll serve me? Hooray, hooray. We get to have Jacob on our team. But the second time, after Jacob has had his encounter with God, wrestling with God, At Bethel, the Jacob's Ladder incident, God comes and renews the covenant with Jacob. And Jacob is never the same again. And he's a better man and a wiser man because he is a saved man and a holy man. And for the rest of his life, he's limping around the countryside, remembering that an encounter with God crippled him, but it saved him. Sometimes we just need to be met by God like that. We need to have him touch us in the hip and put us down and cause us to see that if we let go, we're going to fall. And this is what God is reminding Judah about. And when we get to verse 6, the NIV says, but, I think the ESV gets it better here, so, so, God says, remember Jacob. Grabs people by the heel, wrestles with God, is made a child of the covenant by God. So you, by the help of your God, come back. And the lesson of Jacob for the people of Judah is, you have not sinned, Beyond my grace, beyond my ability to make you better. If I can make Jacob something worthwhile, what do you think I can do with you? And folks, that's it. That is it. What do you wrestle with? I wrestle with God. What sins do you wrestle with? What issues do you have? What doubts seem to be taking over? God has dealt with bigger, harder, more stubborn than you. And even if he hasn't, if you're the most sinful and the most wicked and the most stubborn he's ever had to deal with, which you are not, but if you are, God's good for it. 
So you, by the help of your God, come back. He says to Judah, If you want to come back, I will help you. You don't have to do this alone. What insurmountable thing, what insurmountable sin, what insurmountable obstacle is there between you and being what God wants you to be? It's not bigger than Him. So you, by the help of your God, return. We are Christians. I'm guessing most of us in this room are. If you are not, here's the message for you. God got you in here this morning to hear this. You can get to God by God's help. Don't try to do it on your own. You simply go to God and say, Lord, I can't do anything. Save me. And He will. For those of you who are Christian, what is it that makes you tired? What sin do you have that makes you... I'll never beat this. I'm just a horrible example of a sinner saved by grace. I got the sinner part now. There doesn't seem to be much grace. And God says to you, by the help of your God, return to me. I will help you. That's what this is about. God comes to Judah, who is sinning, and says, you remember your father Jacob? What a loser he was. Do you see what I made him? I can do that for you too. He can do that, folks, for you too. God is not less God than He was in the days of Judah, in the days of Israel. Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. There's the prayer request. I pray that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you will be closer to Christ. I want you to be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can dwell more closely, more intimately, more faithfully with Christ that you, being rooted and grounded in love, will have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Do you want that? That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And God left it for us. This is what God wants for you. To be so close to Christ that you will be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. And then he says, that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know a love that cannot be known. That's some prayer request. So that you will be filled, and this is when your head blows off, with all the fullness of God. You will be everything that God calls you to be. That is stunning. I don't know what's big on your prayer list, folks, but add Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 to it. This is some prayer request. And God can do this for me. I am approaching what our culture calls an old man. I was baptized 
by my father 57 years ago. And this is all you get after 57 years. Surely we can do better than this. And God says, but I'm not done with you yet, Ken. Pray this in. If I can make Jacob something, I can make you something. If you are obeying, if you are showing the answer to the prayer I just read from Paul in Ephesians 3 perfectly, you are the first. We got a ways to go, but God wants this for us. Would you like it to be for you? It's what God wants. This is God's will. This is what I pray for you, Paul says, Ephesians. And God says, we're going to leave that one for eternity for my children to see. Pray this in. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your church. And pray it knowing that a God who can take the Jacobs of the world and make them something can do it for you as well. How can this happen? Look at the verse. By the help of your God, we ask Him. We are to pray in a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God. We are to pray for help. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that we can't utter. Get into the Word of God. I prayed the verse. The Word of God is, is all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to be, I want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God says, by the help of your God, come and stop struggling alone. I think I probably have preached this here before, actually. I know I have. But this is, I think this is the biggest place where we fall down. We want, we want to become these things that we see in Ephesians 3 and, and 1 Timothy 3 or 2 Timothy 3. All these texts that, with these prayers that say, this is what I want for you. You say, I want that and I'm not there yet. And we say, well, let's use what God gives us. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. We've got prayer. We've got the, the Word of God. But dear ones, we have each other. And we can't make it alone. And if we're going to get to be more conformed to the image of Christ, we must, we must, we must do it together. You, if you are not sharing your struggles, your desires with someone else, with at least one other, then I know this about you. You're failing. The writer of the Hebrews says, See to it that no one has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another every day. Don't sin. What's the opposite of sin in Hebrews 3? Mutual encouragement. And that's where we fall down, I think. We get in our prayer closets all by ourselves, and we pray hard, and we read our Bibles, and we get up, and we try to do it all by ourselves. And God says... Whatever gave you the idea that that's all you have to do? You need help. You need human, touchy-feely help. Thank God the pandemic's over. Or at least the restrictions. Because we need to be here. We can't do this alone. 
So use what God gives you. And so Judah's called to repent. Judah's called to get the help of God with them. And Judah is called to obey. He says in verse 6, By the help of your God, get back to me. Use what God gives you. Hold fast to love and justice. Unbelievable. Jesus says, Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor and yourself. Everything, everything I have, everything the Father has written down in the Old Testament is summed up in this. Love God and love your neighbor. And here it is. Hold fast to love and justice. That word love just might be loving kindness. The word means loving kindness. It's talking about how we deal with other people. People who don't believe like we do. People who are poor. People who are hurting. People who are sad. People who are needy. I remember a few years ago, Mayor uh, Rob, Rob Ford, wanted to outlaw squeegee guys cleaning windows. And I, I thought that was a horrible thing to do because I think they were working for a living. And if I can't give them two bucks for cleaning my windows, there's something wrong with me. Here I am stuck in traffic underneath the Gardner Expressway, and this kid comes along and says, can I wash your window? And I say, no, this is too much of a bother. We're going to outlaw you. I don't get it. And God says, do something of loving kindness to somebody. You mean the squeegee kid? Oh, maybe. Maybe somebody else. But we're... Nah. We're so worried they might have some money in their back pocket that we don't want to give. But there's other ways to help if you don't think the squeegee kid deserves it or the, the guy holding up Tim Horton's cup as you walk by. There's all kinds of ways to be good to people. Do loving kindness and justice. Justice, I'm preaching in our church next week. They want me to preach on the justice of God. Huh. And I think what I've come up with... God's justice is that he always does what is right. God always does what is right. And he calls us to love people, love God, love our neighbors, and do what is right by them. Get involved in people's lives. Feed your family. Take care of your own. And if God so blesses you that you've got a couple of bucks left over after you do all that, use it for the good of somebody. Everybody should work hard with their own hands, Paul tells the Ephesians, so that we can have something to share with those in need. God says to the people of Judah, come back to me, love me, love your neighbor, and do what is right by them. Go back to Ezekiel 22 and look at the sins they are committing, and 90% of them have to do with the mistreatment of others. So, repent. Use me to help you. Love me. Love your neighbor. And treat them right. You fill in the blank. Put it at the top of a blank sheet of paper. How am I going to treat people right this week? And start filling it in. And then go do it. And I have preached far too long already. So we'll finish here. Return to me by my help. Hold fast to love and justice. And wait continually for your God. 
You can do loving and right things. You can do much, but only God can change a heart. Do what is right. Love me. Love your neighbor. And wait for me to bring the fruit from it. Don't run ahead of God and try to do what only I can do. Do what I've told you to do. Love me. Love your neighbor. And treat people with justice, with righteousness. I'll take care of the rest. But we are an impatient people. Did the prayer start? The pastoral prayer started with that today, I think. Oh, Lord, we don't like waiting. And we don't like waiting. God's not on our timetable. When we moved to Liebenzell Mission, we sold our house in Toronto. I think it was about three days before all the prices took off. And, and now we are retiring next August, and the prices have all taken off. I don't have a place to live. And I need some, some help. And I, we are praying about it, and we've come up with a few plans and try to live somewhere close enough to the GTA that I can still preach without, uh, you know, traveling four or five hours to get there simply because I need an affordable place to live. And so we're praying. And we believe God is going to give us a place to live. I don't think God's going to have me on the street. But he will not tell me yet. He, he keeps not saying where we're going to live. I said, I want a place to live, and I want to know right now. And God says, tough. Wait for me. Wait for me. Early in 1982, my wife's mother went into a diabetic coma. We got a call saying that she was gravely ill and did not know if she would survive the night. We were living in Newfoundland at the time. About 2.30 in the morning... The phone rang. I said, that's your father. So go answer it. She said, that's bad news. You go answer it. And we argued for a bit. And as in all good marriages, I lost. And I went to answer the phone. And I was expecting it to be Heather's dad saying that his wife had just died. Heather's mom had just died. That was 1982. She didn't die until 2000. And I answered the phone. It was my brother from British Columbia. And he says, I just wanted to call you and tell you that I just got saved. I said, wow. He said, I called mom before I called you. And I said to mom, have you been praying for me lately? And mom said, every day for the last 18 years. My mother, uh, every day for the last 18 years, why didn't you quit? Because he's not saved yet. <laughs> That's why he didn't quit. He wasn't saved yet. Every day for the last 18 years. Why doesn't God answer your prayer for your family members? Why doesn't God revive the church the way we want him to? Why doesn't God make it easy for me to defeat my sin? Why doesn't God do what I want when I want it? It's none of our business. He says, come back to me. I will help you. Do what is right. Love me. 
love your neighbor, and wait for me to do something. Your work, dear ones, is not in vain. God is going to make something happen with it, from it, because of it, even if you don't see it. Wait on the Lord. God is at work. And he doesn't, he doesn't answer to my timetable. He doesn't say, he doesn't strike bargains with me. That was Jacob's problem. I'll serve you if. No, 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 no. You will serve me. And you will trust me to do what is right. Because I always do what is right. Because I am just. So you come back to me. I will help you defeat your sins. You do what is right in this world because you love me and you love your neighbor. And you trust me to bring fruit out of it, even if you never see it. Folks, that's just living the Christian life. That's what we do. We live a life of repentance and service, and we know in the depths of our souls that God's going to use it. And someday we shall stand before God and say, I never saw the fruit of it. And God will say, just watch this. And we will say, wow, that was worth the wait. God bless you.